You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of 40 Signs of Rain and 50 Degrees Below. His latest novel is 60 Days and Counting. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Oh, thank you, Rick. Good to be here. I really like this latest novel, and it's a fantastic invention, this triptych meta-novel. Tell me a little bit about what made you decide to write such a large novel. Well, uh, I wanted to describe um, a very near future in America, in Washington, D.C., in which there was uh, an an abrupt climate change uh, caused by the increasing global warming, but that stalling the Gulf Stream actually destabilizes the weather in the northern hemisphere such that you don't just get warmer days, but also much wilder storms, uh, perhaps intense cold, and in, in essence, a, a different weather regime that would be a, a gigantic challenge to civilization at this moment. It's not at all unlikely that something like this will happen pretty soon because we've pumped so much uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. And of course, now this is known to all, but it's interesting to tell that story to suggest what we could do about it. And so I wanted to do a, a kind of domestic comedy about global warming and a utopian disaster novel. And these are kind of new genres, as you can tell by my uh, names for them, uh, a little bit mysterious what they might be. But one thing for sure is I needed lots of room to um, spread out in. And so uh, science fiction has the wonderful tradition of the very long novel divided up into volumes as in Victorian times, the trilogy or quartet or sextet or what have you. And in fact, this particular trilogy plays off of my earlier novel, Antarctica, using the same characters and playing off that earlier situation described there. So in a way, I've got a little uh, quartet. But in any case, the the 40, 50, 60 books are are one novel about the group of characters in D.C. And sometimes you need that amount of length to tell the story properly. And and everybody um, is aware of that, writers, readers, publishers, and for people who like uh, novels, uh, often the longer they go on, the better that is, because you can really dive into them and hardly ever come out for uh, however many months it takes to read it. So that's why it turned out so long. You call this a science fiction story, but it's almost set in the present. And there's been a lot of talk lately among science fiction writers about Uh, science fiction not uh, being about the future, but being about the present. And and in your case, you really use science fiction to, in a way, predict the present. You've predicted that there will be, in this novel, predicts that there will be a presidential election around which one of the major concerns is global warming. And indeed, we are headed towards just such an event. Yes, I, I think it's always been true that uh, science fiction is a way of examining what we're thinking about in the present and how, how the present looks uh, because of the uh, increase in our technological abilities and the sort of speed of technological change. It feels like history itself has accelerated, and I think that's right, so that you need to uh, write about future possibilities in order to examine the present moment. And that's, science fiction has always done that, but now have become much more aware of it because of this feeling that um, the, the future has become a giant um, 
field of possibilities where uh, anything could happen and that 10 years from now might feel uh, distinctly different from now for in the way that daily life feels. So I, I, there are many different ways to approach it, and one of them is to set your stories uh, hundreds of years in the future and say, we could get to this place and that would be good or bad. But another way that's always ex- existed is to put a story in a, a kind of a day-after-tomorrow zone where you I uh, practice the habit of not putting a date on it and of mixing elements so that some things are describing uh, very clearly what's happening right now and then other things won't happen for 20 years or so probably, but you stick them in the same novel as contemporary events and it's a, it's a little bit destabilizing and, and a kind of a cognitive estrangement, as people say. Um, and, and But that's how now feels. It feels like stuff that is going to happen 20 years from now is already emergent in the culture and, and the people who are interested in new tech are already doing it and will all be doing it in 10 years. And so there is a sense that the present uh, it includes a lot of the future as well as a huge bulk of the past. And that when we're spending our daily realities, we're, we're dealing with um, um, elements that are 200 or 2,000 years old and also elements that are not going to be fully um, obvious to everybody for another 10, 15, or 20 years. And that's just the way daily life is now. So uh, I think of science fiction, especially in this this arm of it, uh, this wing of it, as a kind of a, a realism of our moment. It's the best way to describe the way life feels right now. And I've been saying that pretty much my whole career, but I think it's becoming more and more obvious what I mean. It, it really interests me the way that science fiction entered the national argument about global climate change. And, and in the way it did was that uh, Michael Crichton's State of Fear was released, and it was a, a novel based upon science that suggested that global warming was not a problem, wasn't happening, and it was you know hard, heartily accepted by the current administration it was not heartily accepted by the literary establishment. And I wonder if you care to, to talk about how a bad, badly written novel might damage its own arguments. Well, it, it, I wouldn't uh, want to judge um, uh, Crichton's work because I haven't read it. Um, I have heard his case described, and I read his testimony to Congress when he was asked speak to the Senate by Senator Inhofe of Idaho to support that political position that global warming wasn't a problem. And to me, from his Senate testimony, it was pretty clear that his definition of science was very incomplete and that you cannot restrict science to the laboratory and to the, um, the double-blind, uh, repeatable, falsifiable experiment. If you did that, there would be no such thing as geology or astronomy or any of the rest of the natural history sciences, which are very solidly based and, uh, and quantifiable, mathematical, and yet not susceptible to lab experiments, which Crichton was claiming is the only way you can be sure of things. Now, um, the climate modeling is, is only modeling, and all of the serious scientists will agree that we do not know what will happen in the future, but for sure you pump um, 120 parts per million of CO2 into the atmosphere uh, in uh, 50 times faster than ever happened in natural history, you are going to get some heating effects and some intensity increases that is almost uh, a basic matter of physics that is incontrovertible. And that's what the climate scientists who have really uh, worked in these fields have agreed on in 
in massive majorities, so that 98% of the scientists who have ever studied this issue in detail and done the actual work of the mathematics have come to agree that we are going to see climate change because of what we have done, and that if we don't stop pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at the rate we have been, we may push the climate over tipping points into different regimes, very damaging to humans and to the rest of the biosphere, that we will not be able to come back from. We won't be able to mitigate. We won't be able to reverse our course. So uh, they're worried, and you have never seen the scientific community do what they are doing now, not in the entire history of humanity has the scientific community risen up as it has in this case. So possibly uh, Crichton's work has been a kind of a catalyst for the scientific community to speak louder than they would have otherwise and say, wait a second, this is wrong, and we know it's wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, I think even without Crichton's book, you know, um, all this may have happened the same way anyway. So one wouldn't want to, I mean, it's sort of a tendency of artists to kind of overemphasize the importance of their impact on the culture, and I'm not so sure that it's the case. I I have the feeling that things are grinding along in the way that they would even without the artist's uh, uh, contributions. One thing that I, I was thinking as I was writing up this interview was that the there's so much bad science and just hand-waving masquerading as science out there now that the definition of science fiction itself may change to be <laughs> indeed uh, science that is fictional. Oh, well, the, you know, that's, there, is a, there are political battles over scientific results and what it might mean, but the process of doing science is pretty robust, and I know it's being challenged right now by um, uh, interested parties, by, uh, essentially by political actors and economic actors that would like to be getting different results than they are. But the peer review system, the kind of massive machinery and institution of science is, is strong. And so now I think what we're seeing in our culture is a, is a giant battle between two social dominants, which is the scientific culture of reproducibility, of looking at results, of, of coming to conclusions that are quantifiable that everybody looking at the evidence would have to agree on, and this, this entire uh, massive culture that, back, that lives by that, those rules as against interested parties that are interested in keeping profits and keeping hierarchies and keeping political power that don't like the results that are coming out and are trying to subvert it. So this is like some gigantic Punch and Judy um, battle of puppets. You know, If you look at the whole thing at a kind of a mythic level on the largest scale of, of two social dominants, uh, science and capitalism, that right now are not aligned and are um, essentially a battle between what I think of as a, a democratic and just uh, order of doing business, which uh, the scientific culture has helped to create, and the old hierarchy of feudalism where a few people get to keep the, the benefits of the work of everybody and, and a power-dominant system that has existed for far too long and still is really powerful in the world. And the story of the 21st century is going to be partly the battle between these, these Siamese twins that have grown up together and, and do not have similar uh, goals. And I think the quicker we recognize the, the, the outlines of the battle and, and choose our sides and try to choose the democratic justice side that is uh, underlying or backed by the scientific community, the, the better off our, our 
the generations to come are going to be. We talked a little bit about science fiction as a predictive literature, and these days it doesn't see itself as such, but that's not always been the case. I, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, Robert A. Heinlein, and in particular Arthur C. Clarke, defined their work as trying to predict the future, and Clarke was not unsuccessful at this. Uh, do you think that science fiction could once again decide to put on its mantle of uh, its crystal ball mantle and seek to actually try to predict what's going to happen in the future? And if so, how would science fiction writers of the future maybe go about doing that? It would be hard. Um, the acceleration that I spoke of in the speed of historical change means that even five years, ten years from now, uh, there may be elements that the current writers aren't even considering that come into play. And ever since 9-11, we've suddenly become aware that um, the planet is not uh, coherent in its uh, political and spiritual beliefs and that there are surprises can happen that are so radical that it isn't, uh, that the future is not predictable, and it never was predictable. And so that the great acts of prediction, like Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or Arthur C. Clarke, where they look at the technological situation and say, well, if you you could make a submarine that could stay under water for a year, or you could put satellites in geosynchronous orbit, and then you could bounce radio signals off them, and you'd have worldwide communication. Well, these kinds of predictions are perhaps still possible on the technical uh, arena, um, although, as I say, it would be hard. But but looking, like just right now, I can say, you know, it'll get to the point where you could clone yourself as a human being. You could make little babies that are genetically identical to you. That probably will become technically possible. But the, science, the scientific predictions are, are, and technical predictions are, are minor compared to historical, political uh, predictions, and there it's just impossible to say. The 21st century could be a coalescing of a kind of um, permaculture where everybody learns to get along with everybody else. We stabilize population and we invent a technology that's clean. It could be, in other words, a utopian future. On the other hand, if um, our, our uh, disagreements and our, our radical disagreements with each other about what, how humanity should conduct its business uh, could lead to a state of chaos and war that you know, makes the 20th century look like a fairly peaceful one. So, in other words, it's kind of utopia or apocalypse in, in historical terms and probably everything in between, although because of the way things are going to tip one way or another, I would argue that things are either going to get markedly better or else markedly worse, and then we aren't just going to be able to muddle along in a middle course. And that is a, is a prediction, and it may be wrong, um, because so far we've kind of been muddling along in a middle course, but now our powers are so huge and the dangers are so huge that it seems like we either have to get it together or else things will get chaotic. But you can tell when I start speaking in such generalized terms that uh, prediction in the old science fiction sense is is somewhat broken down. I mean, anybody can say what I just said by looking at the situation. So there, I don't think there's any specialized uh, predictive function that science fiction can perform anymore. What it does is to write out scenarios and describe certain possibilities in detail that people can look at that and they can say, that's desirable, that's not desirable, or even they can say, well, that's plausible or that's implausible. And uh, science fiction can still do that in a way that is also entertaining to read, so that not only do you get the great gratifications of reading novels and stories about people under stress, but you also get to think about the larger historical situation in a more detailed way than usual. 
And that's what science fiction can still do and, and does better than anything else. One element of your work that I really enjoy is comedy. You put a lot of comedy in your work, don't you? Yes. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of comedy. I, I've seen domestic comedy. There's slapstick. There's language. There's satire. And it all feeds into your kind of your science fiction, speculative fiction vision. Well, I mean, one thing I've got to say is that I'm not quick-witted enough to be funny in person, except as a kind of buffoon. And so uh, it's a little bit of a wish fulfillment to be uh, funny and to do comedy. But and if you give me six months, I can think up a joke or write a funny scene. And so although I'm very slow at it, um, I enjoy comedy as a reader and as a human being amongst my much funnier friends. So it's something that I like to try. And I also think that it's a really valuable thing in fiction, that especially doing science fiction and looking at the, the somewhat grim possibilities of an overcrowded planet, that it's important to remember that we're alive, that there's reasons for joy in any given day, and that... Um, um, there's a, always this strange discrepancy between what we would want to do and what really happens, and that really often leads to comedy. And you can't ignore it, or else literature isn't doing the job of making a, a decent description of reality and, and also not doing its job of entertaining people. So I, I think that, um, you know, every day, daily life has its uh, huge measure of, of funny things happening, and they need to be included, and that it's it's fun, actually, to try to write this stuff down. It's some of the hardest writing that there is, um, and, and, and yet it's, it's worth trying. You mentioned to me when I talked to you for Interzone that your next novel will be a science fiction novel about Galileo, which you described as another comedy. Can you tell us a little more? <laughs> Uh, well, not much more. I'm in the middle of it. I'm having a lot of fun. Um, there are comic elements to it because uh, Galileo himself is a hilarious guy and, and uh, much more than just funny. I mean, obviously a, a, a very important historical actor, uh, but also a tremendous character. Uh, it would, a novelist would be hard-pressed to invent a, a character as as full and as entertaining as Galileo was in his real life. And it's even obvious to me now, reading his letters and all the biographies, that he went through some major changes in his life in, in a way that fiction suggests is true more often than reality suggests is true. And so I'm enjoying it a lot. And um, there's really not much more to be said right now. I'm, I mean, uh, there are, I probably said too much about it already, really, but uh, Galileo will uh, experience some adventures that he won't be able to know if they're dreams or not, but we will be able to know by the content of these experiences that he's been um, uh, requisitioned by people from the far future who have a little bit of control over time travel. And uh, and that his services are are needed to help out in in the distant future on the moons that he first saw through his telescope, the moons of Jupiter that we call the Galilean moons. So this is a kind of a fantasia that I'm playing with that is uh, entertaining me in the writing. Now, uh, and I I just hope that I can uh, do it justice and that it'll entertain readers too. Are you sure you're not recounting your own experiences? It seems quite likely that people from the far future might want to <laughs> make use of your services. Oh, well, let's, let's hope they wait. Uh, you know, if, uh, that would be uh, a bit much. I, I'm, I'm sort of hoping this stays on a level of fantasy. I'm, 
Um, the one thing I'll say that I share with Galileo is a sense of amazement at the universe and a, and a sense of enjoyment of daily life. It's really obvious that he enjoyed food, wine, and his garden, and I enjoy all those things. And, and I, I enjoy watching one of the, you know, the great minds of human history uh, clearly um, uh, absorbed in his family, his daughters, his, his garden, and his immediate surroundings that he didn't uh, live in a world of abstractions or of the laws of physics that he was um, discovering with his experiments, but it was part and parcel of a, of a larger human existence. And so he serves as a great model that way and, and, and is a very hilarious guy. I mean, he was obviously a sarcastic, uh, um, irritating person, uh, arrogant and full of himself when he was young, a young professor who needed to make more money. But by the time he was old, he was um, a lot more generous, and, and um, um, he had been changed by experience, including the big trial in which he was forced to recant his um, astronomical theories. So this is a great story to tell, because it's a very full and human story. It's really what novels are designed to do. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Kim Stanley Robinson. He's the author of 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, and his latest novel is 60 Days and Counting. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.